encounter, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Jesse Covington, who's a professor of political science at Westmont College, and um, he is a friend of our church and has come before, and we're so grateful to have him. And of course, whenever we talk about politics, I'm sure that will bring up different emotions for people. Uh, and so I would just encourage us all to um, engage in this conversation thoughtfully. And uh, Dr. Covington has something that he's prepared that he's going to share with us. And so we'll wait for our questions until our allotted time of Q&A at the end. But Jesse is going to make sure to provide that time for Q&A. But we're really excited to have you here. So let's give him a hand. I will pray to get us started. God, thank you so much for the gift of scholarship for um, people who have devoted their lives to learning more about your world and your kingdom. And I thank you for Dr. Covington and his work as a political scientist and professor. God, we pray that you would bless his work and make it so fruitful for his students and also for the church. We get to be um, beneficiaries of his wisdom and knowledge, and we are grateful. So, Lord, would your Holy Spirit guide this time, fill this room, uh, and would we learn something new today? So we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to sit down, Mark. Thank you for addressing such a controversial subject. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not without some trepidation that I come and, uh, and, and, and speak on something that I know can be controversial. And on a Sunday when, uh, when even the sermon text is on a story of someone getting up and saying something uh, and then the congregation wants to throw them off a cliff. <laughs> um, this, I, that did cross my mind, Denny. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Nikki, for praying for me uh, ahead of time here. And, and also, I'll just say thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I, um, I've, long, I've long thought that part of my calling as a political scientist and as a professor at a Christian college is a calling to the church. Um, but, but sadly, the partnership between the university and the church, the college and the church, isn't always exactly what I would wish. And, um, and so this doesn't happen as, as much as it might um, just in general. So my default answer has always been if, if a church asks, I, I need to say yes if there's absolutely any way to, to make it work. And so um, that can be hard if it's a church that I don't know particularly. It's much easier when there are a lot of friends as there are, um, as there are here. Um, it's, um, I'm truly honored to be invited and kind of a joy and a privilege uh, to be here. I'll also just say, what a, what a joy to worship together. Um, you know, my church home is at Christ Presbyterian uh, downtown, but I was, and I know, I know Presbyterians aren't supposed to cry, but I was moved to tears during the service just in, in worshiping and praying together because of the, I like to call myself an eschatological Catholic, and I mean Catholic in the universal sense of the church, that when Jesus comes back, we're all going to worship together, even we're in, it, all, all of us who are in different congregations um, now, we get to worship together um, in the new heavens and the new earth. And worshiping with you this morning was just a picture of that to me in a way that was, that was genuinely moving. And so I'll just say, I'm, I'm grateful 
to get to worship with with you, um, brothers and sisters. Um, so thank you. Uh, last time I spoke here was in 2019, and I, I spoke then about Christian nationalism, and I, I offered something of a critique of Christian nationalism, and offered a, a, what, what I was calling an Augustinian chastened patriotism as an alternative, and um, and it sounds it sounds like so all of our challenges of Christian nationalism are neatly sewn up and, and resolved in our common life. Uh, um, so clearly, we need a new topic. Yeah, thank you. You got uh, that was a joke. Um, when uh, when Pastor Nikki invited me, she told me that the theme for encounter this term um, is grounded in Philippians three eighteen to twenty. Um, Specifically, the, the, the aspect of this is our citizenship is in heaven. And then thinking through what does it mean to live now in light of our citizenship being in heaven. And um, I love that question. I love that question. Um, and I love thinking about politics and culture uh, in light of ultimate citizenship being in heaven. I like to think that that's very Augustinian. Um, I like St. Augustine. Some of you know that. Um, when I'm honest with myself, it's actually St. Paul. But um, uh, I, I, I enjoy that frame. And I will say, some have asked whether a focus on hev- heavenly citizenship makes Christians of no earthly good. And, um, and some of you know Johnny Cash's song. About How many of you know Johnny Cash's song? Um, uh, uh, so, so heavenly minded of no earthly good? No, no one. Okay. Okay. One. Uh, all right. Two. All right. There we go. Um, but I think the reality is the opposite, that if our eyes are fixed on heaven, it transforms the significance of all the things that we do here and now. And, um, and so this kind of conversation is a really important one. Um, so I like the, one of the framing questions that Nikki sent me, uh, you know, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, how are we invited to live politically, socially, relationally, and economically here on earth? Yeah, yeah. Just to be clear, I'm taking one narrow slice of, of, of this. And it, this is actually probably worth noting. Um, I, maybe I should note this uh, um, here. I'm going to be talking about politics but I don't conflate the political with the public. So there might be lots of other things that Christians ought to be doing in the public realm that aren't reducible to the political. So if there's something that you're thinking really doesn't fit in what I'm saying, you're kind of thinking, well, he's missing a major trick here. It's possible. I might be, and you can tell me about it. But it also might be a part of the public that isn't part of the political. I'm going to be focusing what I say on the political. So um, it's probably yeah, worth, worth noting. Um, today I want to think about, um, about politics, how our Christian commitments should relate to our political involvements. That is, if something more than self-interest, as Pastor Colleen was referring to near the end of her sermon this morning, something more than self-interest should be involved in our political activity, how do we think about this and operationalize it? Um, 
Before we get into the substance, I'll just give you a foretaste of where we're headed, then I'll give you a handout, and then we're off and running. You invite a professor, and I'm, I'm, I, I can't help but do the nerdy version. So well, I've got a handout, and, we're gonna, and then we're going to uh, really get moving. But I'm, I'm going to suggest that there's some very helpful resources from within the Christian intellectual tradition, particularly the natural law part of the tradition, that can equip us for thinking well about political morality. I'm also going to layer on top of that, I think, certain theological insights from the Protestant Reformation and from the broader evangelical theological tradition may inform how we use the natural law tradition in the context of a liberal democracy. <laughs> and even shape it into something slightly different from its well, more well-known Roman Catholic manifestations. Now, a couple of caveats about how I'm using terminology, because as soon as we get it, as soon as I start using terminology like liberal democracy or evangelical, I, people tend to get uncomfortable. And so I just want to, I want to clarify a couple things. Um, uh, number one, when I talk about liberal democracy, I am talking about a liberty-protecting type of government that's characterized by democratic accountability. So when I say liberal democracy, that's what I mean. I don't mean liberal as opposed to conservative. I'm a political theorist. I have to use political theorist terms. When I talk about liberal democracy, a liberty-protecting uh, form of government that is characterized by democratic accountability. Second, when I talk about evangelical... Um, evangelical has become a more charged uh, term. I'm thinking about evangelical theologically, not sociologically, not as a political identity, but it, it, in broad terms, I, I think of there's an intellectual historian named David Bevington who said, look, evangelicalism is really characterized by um, being focused on Scripture, on the Bible, by being focused on the cross of Jesus Christ, by being focused on conversion. Uh, our, our response uh, to God is central and on what he called activism and what he means is a transformed life as a result. So and I think that's a pretty good summary. When I read in, uh, in the bulletin the who we are description, I hear a theological evangelicalism that resonates with, what, with, with Bevington. But I recognize that we hear evangelical used in some other ways, so I just want to be clear, I'm using it in that more theological sense. Um, and I should also, I should also acknowledge, I'm, I'm drawing on a project that I've, I've been writing a book with a couple of colleagues. This is Michael Watson at Calvin University and Brian McGraw at Wheaton College. And uh, we have a book that will be coming out either late this year or early next um, that's on this topic. And so any good ideas that you hear are at least as much theirs as they are mine. And any bad ideas that you hear are probably attributable to, to, to me. But we call this reimagining of natural law hopeful realism. So I'm going to use hopeful realism as a shorthand um, as, as we go forward. Um, to help you keep track of where we are, and then also to help you keep me accountable for leaving time for Q&A, um, I'm going to send around a handout that just has an outline of where we're headed. And I'll try to refer to this. Thanks, Russ. Sorry. Here. In, well, okay, we'll send maybe that one over to that side. Okay. Great. Um, <clears throat> and while that's coming around, I'll, 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 I'm about to tell you about two problems. So if you're looking at the outline... I'm about to talk about problem number one. Um, 
Christians, including evangelical Christians, have some problems in how they apply moral norms to politics. But I'll tell you a story first. I met recently with a student. The student was raised in a Christian home with thoughtful, well-educated parents. And he was getting ready to vote for the first time. And he wanted to talk to me about if and how his Christian commitments might relate to his political engagement. And he told me that before talking to me, he had talked to both of his parents. And they gave him different answers, very different answers. One of his parents had said, yes, your Christian beliefs should inform your political activities. But didn't give him much guidance on how and left him a little bit perplexed. The other parent had said, absolutely not. Um, you shouldn't impose your views of the world on others who don't share the same commitments. <laughs> and so he came to me and said, all right, you, you solve it. Um, and he, so you, yeah, he left this conversation with his parents a little bit confused. And part of why I mentioned that, that, by the way, I think there's a tension there between, I'd say, kind of a holistic, uh, robust Christian approach uh, to the way we live and, and move in the world and liberal democracy. And we're going to be coming back to that. So just put a pin in that one. Um, but there is, I think, this challenge. And we see this manifest. And I may say some things that make somebody uncomfortable in here and just keep me away from the cliff. But... Um, um, <laughs> Christians in the U.S. don't have a great track record of doing this consistently and coherently. And regardless of what you think about the several issues that I'm going to note and giving as examples of this, all I'm trying to illustrate by giving these examples is kind of rapid or stark changes in the way that Christians articulate the ways that their beliefs relate to particular issues, right? So I'm not saying, but I'll give some examples. Several major Protestant denominations in the U.S. were deeply complicit in defending race-based slavery on the basis of Christian faith. And that is a position they have now repudiated and repented of, as I think we would say very clearly, as deeply inconsistent with their most fundamental commitments. And we're tempted to say, kind of, how, how could they? Um, but changes, major changes in the way um, Christians apply their beliefs to politics continue. Um, well, a number of evangelicals would now consider the sanctity of life a political non-negotiable, um, this was not always so. Immediately after Roe versus Wade was decided, that decision received measured approval from a number of evangelical denominations and groups. The most of them have repudiated and repented of that since. We'll keep getting closer and closer to the present here. Between 2004 and 2007, this is only a 13-year gap. The percentage of, um, and this information on white evangelical Protestants, um, the percentage of white evangelical Protestants expressing support for same-sex marriage more than tripled from 11% to 30%. 5%. That's only 13 years to triple the view of change. That's just rapid change. And what I'm trying to illustrate is um, 
changing positions over time. Another example, in, in um, 2011, evangelical Christians were the least likely group to believe that someone who behaved immorally could be trusted with a political office. That is, only 30% of evangelicals thought that someone who behaved immorally could be trusted with political office. Five years later, that 30% had transformed to 71% who believed an immoral person could be trusted with political office. That's a 40% change in five years. So my, my, point, my point here is, and there are other examples, right? This is just, this is just a few. My point is that Christian moral judgments about political things, leave them open, leave us, I'll put myself in, in, in that camp, um, leave us open to the accusation of being made on an ad hoc basis, that is, without coherence or consistency. And this is, I think, in part, uh, part of the challenge that was facing the student that I was talking to. Um, where you have thoughtful Christian parents with very little clarity on these questions. And, and it's not just incoherence that I think it leaves us open to. I think it leaves us open to selectivism, to hypocrisy, to pursuing status and power, if I dare say it, over our moral convictions. And the, the upshot of this, and there's more to it than this, but this is one piece. I think this has contributed to the damage to the moral witness of the church. And this is, this is where things are going to start to get tough. <laughs> is none of us are wholly wrong. Mercifully, right? None of us are wholly wrong. But the thing about inconsistency is we can be right about some things and blind to the places that we're not. And so usually when we start to get into some of how do we make this more coherent, there's a number of things that look appealing and attractive and ratify the positions that we already hold. And then there's also a number of things that challenge and unsettle us and make us uncomfortable. And um, I'm not going to get terribly deep into all of the weeds because of the limits on time um, and because of some of the risks involved. Um, but my, my, my hope is really twofold for where we go with the rest, rest of my, my comments. Is one, I want this to be like a, a teaser, like a film trailer, that even if it doesn't sew up everything about a plot, in fact, it shouldn't, it, it leaves you thinking, Oh, maybe I should maybe I should see that film. Maybe I should look a little more here, right? So I'm not going to try to sew it all up. I'm just trying to provide a film trailer. And and then secondly, and this is related to what I was just saying. My hope is that there's something here that raises the prospect of of making you a little uncomfortable. It's a little bit challenging, and that that isn't something that you need, feel that you need to lean away from but that it, we can lean into. Um, so that's, 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 my, that's my hope. Okay, so I've given you the first problem. The first problem is that Christians do a um, less than ideal job, or have been doing a less than ideal job with um, um, <clears throat> applying moral norms to politics. Here's the, here's the second one, and I'll be briefer uh, with this one. 
In the, if you're following along in the outline, we're at the problem part two, moral politics versus liberal democracy. Um, this is a pressing problem. I think the ways that people respond to the absence of clear, coherent, and consistent moral guidance to politics, one of the responses is to cling to particular moral visions of politics even when they mean rejecting liberal democracy. And sometimes especially because of when they mean rejecting liberal democracy. Now remember, I'm using liberal democracy to describe limited, liberty-respecting governments characterized by democratic accountability. But sometimes people see the absence of the moral frameworks in a liberal democracy as a reason for saying, okay, if I have to choose between these, I'm choosing a moral framework and rejecting the liberal democracy. And this might be getting into a little bit of things that political theorists talk about but there, there's been a marked rise over the last decade, especially, of what we call post-liberal movements. And post-liberalism, on the right, it looks like various kinds of authoritarianism um, and nationalism that, that are really clear about a particular uh, moral vision, uh, but also not interested in liberal democracy. Don't actually care that they have to violate the norms of liberal democracy. On the left, this looks like, a, so sometimes there's like different types of hyper-nationalism. If you read in this area, integralism. Anyway, that's, that's kind of like the, the post-liberalisms on, on the right. The post-liberalisms on the left. I'm doing this on your left, right? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do this kind of thing. That kind of happened by accident. I got it right. Um, the post-liberalisms on the left are those that I would say kind of take a particular moral vision, often associated with, a, with um, a vision of equitable outcomes that requires a rejection of liberal democracy um, in order to achieve those outcomes. But it's a particular vision of, that, that's, that, that's often associated um, um, with a certain conceptions. I want to be careful because there's all kinds of things that are good about um, equitable outcomes and equity but there's a particular vision of that taken to um, an extreme that requires a rejection of liberal democracy as such, right? I was actually just citing a whole section of a book on this topic that was its critique of liberal democracy. Um, and, and so with the growth of post-liberalisms, um, there's this desperate need to address the relationship of moral frameworks to a liberal democracy. So that's what I'm going to call the second... Second problem. All right. So now we get to the fun part. <laughs> you spent so long on the problems. Uh, there better be there better be some some hope. And again, remember the hope part that I'm giving here is a teaser. Uh, this is the trailer part. Um, so here we are. We're at Roman numeral four. If you're following along, uh, following along with me. Christians have long framed their understanding of the nature and purpose of political life in terms of the natural law. So since the early church, Christians have acknowledged that humans, by God's creational design, inhabit a world in which moral norms and obligations help direct our shared life toward human flourishing. Um, and that we can derive meaning, poli meaningful political guidance from these. Um, and I will just say, this is probably worth noting, we're always a little bit of a product of our particular time and place. And um, what's just odd is, well, natural law was a centerpiece of Christian political thought for, um, 
most of the time there's been Christianity. It fell out of favor for some particular anomalous things that I'm not going to go into today. In the early 20th century, very beginning of the 20th century, Protestants, and it was really only Protestants, uh, began to be critical of natural law and to reject natural law. And those of us who are Protestants living in the early 21st century are inheriting kind of this historical anomaly in the life of the broader historical church uh, of, of not taking natural law seriously. And, but I will also just say it's not for nothing that someone like a Martin Luther King Jr. grounds his moral clarity on the dignity of humans on the natural law tradition. In other words, what he's appealing to is this tradition that had fallen out of favor and continues to be out of favor in a lot of Protestant circles. So um, the core idea here is that the created order is morally normed. And that these norms are to some degree accessible to everyone as part of general revelation and are binding on all. Now, I'm watching the clock. I know we want to have time for Q&A, so I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to say, Scripture teaches this. Scripture teaches this. And some of the common passages that people go to, if you're wondering, like, where, you know, where, where to go, Psalm 19, 1 through 4, Romans 1 and 2. Those are places where Scripture explicitly talks about the natural law that people that don't have access to Scripture, to, to special revelation, have. But I'll also say, Scripture assumes it much more than it explicitly teaches it. So, for example, think about in the Old Testament. Prior to the law being given to Moses, God judges the wickedness of the earth with the Noahic flood. Right? Also, all the time in the Old Testament, prophets are sent to, I mean, think of Jonah going to Nineveh. Jonah going to Nineveh to pronounce God's judgment on them. They don't have the revealed word of God, they have the natural law. His judgment's coming for their rejection of it. Right, so all, all I'm saying is, the idea of the natural law is biblical. I'm not gonna, I'm, I need to leave it there so that we have time for other things. But one key distinction that I, I, I wanna make here is that there's a difference between creational moral norms and the moral norms of the covenant community of God, that is the worshiping body of believers. They're not inconsistent with each other, but there are things that the covenant community of God is commanded to do that are above and beyond what the natural law, the creational law, requires. So examples of this would be um, uh, everything from you know, se- you know, Sabbath worship to tithing to baptism uh, um, uh, to evangelism. I mean, these are things that we would say, well, every Christian should do that, but we wouldn't expect those whose um, hearts have not turned to Jesus to, to do that, right? That's, 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 that's covenant community stuff. And, uh, and that's distinct from and over and above creational morality. But creational moral norms are those that are common to all by virtue of our shared humanity and context. These days when, when natural law is less talked about, I think it ends up feeling a little foreign, and we kind of wonder, like, this sounds kind of weird, and either, in some cases, overdetermined, like we need to impose some things on people, or underdetermined, like that's a nice vague idea, but we're not really sure that it makes any difference in the practical details. So, so um, 
let me give an example, though, of a place where natural law thinking does actually shape a lot of contemporary thinking, but we don't call it natural law. Um, but this might help it feel a little less foreign if it feels foreign. Um, and I'm stealing this shamelessly from my friend Micah, who's a co-author on the book, but it, 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 he, he wrote this part of the book, and, uh, and, and I, I like it. Um, let's talk about creation care, environmental stewardship. All of our efforts to shape our behavior in ways that care well for God's creation, to steward this good creation well, um, assume several things. That creation is good. Um, it assumes that it can be ordered in better and worse ways, given what sort of a thing it is, right? And that we can better understand questions of right ordering through observation and reflection. Often we call it science. Um, but, there, but if we study it, we can know better how to order it according to what sort of a thing it is. And then there's a normative aspect to this that we ought to um, align our actions with what right ordering of it looks like. That's much more familiar to us. That's natural law. We're just talking about it in relation to humans, not just the natural created world. Um, natural law thinking is, is about human beings and saying, okay, well, humans are a part of God's good creation. It's saying we can order our actions in better and worse ways that are either ordered or disordered with regard to how humans flourish, just like the rest of creation, and that we can better understand these questions of right ordering through reflection, through rational engagement and thinking, and that our choices and actions should align with what leads to flourishing. That's natural law. So it's easy, I think, to see this when we apply it to humans with regard to things like nutrition and exercise, bodily health, right? Natural law thinking doesn't trouble anyone when we're talking about our bodies. But if we're more than our bodies, if we can't be just reduced to our physical, biological selves, then we have to attend to the exact same logic for the rest of us. Okay. This is the, this is the problem. Uh, I'll just say, so obviously, I'm a, I'm a professor. And... If this were a college class, this is one of those places where I say, okay, we're going to stop. Take a deep breath. Um, what are your questions, right? But that's because I'd have like two hours, and I'm trying to keep it to about 40 minutes. Um, so I would just say, take a deep breath <laughs> and save your questions, and, um, and, 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 and we'll get to them. Thanks for the deep breath. Um, okay. So what, is this, what does this actually look like? We're talking about kind of, Human goods. This is where I want to talk about the hopeful part of hopeful realism. Hopeful part of hopeful realism is there are key goods of human flourishing that are common to all. And communities, like political communities, can be more or less oriented toward the true conditions for flourishing. It's just grounded in the order of creation. And these include, I list four goods on 4D of the handout. These are physical goods, rational goods volitional goods and relational goods. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those. Uh, maybe I should at least say, say physical goods, I think, are pretty obvious. These are you know, bodily, bodily health and integrity and, and well-being. Um, rational goods should make sense the, uh, as well. I think this is um, our capacity to reflect on and participate in the ordered mind of God as manifest in the world around us, right? Right. Um, 
but maybe volitional and relational ones, I should just say quickly what I mean by those because those might not be self-evident. Um, volitional goods are, is just connected to the idea that human flourishing includes certain exercise of will and agency in keeping with our capacity as moral beings. We're not robots, we're not animals in the reductive sense of animal. Um, and therefore, we are morally responsible agents, and our ability to use that agency is an important part of our flourishing, just like the rational reflection and the bodily uh, physical health is as well. The, the fourth one here, relational goods, um, is, is really just the idea that humans are made for loving relationships, for life in society, um, um, and in life in relationship with God. In other words, we're made... Being made in the image of a triune God has relational implications, right? If God himself is a trinity of relationship, um, we're made for a relationship with him and with each other. And, um, and our conception of flourishing has to include relational goods um, that can never be collapsed into the collective nor reduced to the individual alone. Now, I will say that particular description of four kind of key goods to keep in mind um, consistent with the broader natural law tradition that has been part of Christianity for millennia. Um, the emphasis is a little bit, I will just, I'll go ahead and admit, it's a little bit more Augustinian um, insofar as it's peeling off the relational and the volitional um, as really clear. But those are, I, we can say more about that later if we want to. Um, so the, pursuing these goods is the hopeful part of hopeful realism. These are what the moral vision of natural law uh, we describe here aspires to. What's the realism part? What's the realism part? This is where uh, I would say this version of natural law is a little bit more Protestant than Catholic. Because I would say um, it emphasizes some of the limits that are caused by sin and the ongoing effects of sin and where we find ourselves in redemptive history. And what I mean by that is just, Jesus has come, he hasn't come back yet, and this is this unique kind of time between the times, um, which puts certain constraints. Because you might be thinking, all right, great, we've got these four goods, we get everybody to agree on them, we all agree, and uh, we all get along, and everything's super cool. But because of the effects of sin, where we find ourselves in redemptive history, and again, Roman Catholics believe this, and it's a question of emphasis, right? It's a question of emphasis, is um, we're, we're, we, we want to say, all right, we need to think seriously about those and what the implications are. And this really leads us um, to articulate um, um, a, a few things. Let me, I'll, I'll say this. Um, imperfect politics and eternal life. Basically, the idea here is perfect flourishing is only available in eternity with God. Perfect flourishing is not going to be accessible here. Therefore, we're always drawing tangent lines around it rather than going right at it. That's a necessity of where we, where we find ourselves. The ravages of evil and sin continue to impact us. We don't even understand natural law perfectly. So until Jesus returns, deep disagreement is going to persist. Christians and non-Christians are going to continue to inhabit the earth together. And the corollary is, therefore, kind of any kind of perfectionist account is always going to go awry. It's always going to go sideways. So hopeful realism is trying to maintain the tension here. Vision for politics, 
remains deeply hopeful and realistic. It's a basic affirmation of creation's goodness and understanding that human well-being is fostered by the right ordering of these goods, and it's a firm recognition that in this life our ability to secure that right ordering is limited. This helps us with liberal democracy. This is the last major piece I'll do. Um, this helps us. This tension helps us with liberal democracy. We, we articulate in this project four principles that flow from our theological commitments and understanding of natural law. And I think these fit well within the broader tradition, but they also reflect a more kind of evangelical, I would say Augustinian set of commitments. Um, but the, I think these four help us take all the stuff I've said about natural law over here into the context of a liberal democracy, of limited rights-respecting or liberty-respecting government that's democratically accountable. How do we kind of connect those two? Because a lot of people hear the goods over here and they're like, okay, if you go with that, that means you're rejecting liberal democracy. And we don't think that's true. Four principles that flow from it. The first of these is I've listed, this is 5A, is the common good and civic friendship. The idea here is that our shared human nature and our creational context means that the kind of things that governments seek um, to cultivate includes just material, relational, and moral goods that are the building blocks of human flourishing. In other words, the common good is accessible in some form, even if it's imperfect, even if it's limited, it's accessible, and that these can and should be the substantive ends at which a liberal democratic order aims. And indeed, even liberal democracy needs such guidance in order to remain grounded in the created order and not just be directed by the momentary will of the majority. So it actually has to be grounded in substantive conceptions of what's true and good to guide where it goes. Second, confessional pluralism and religious liberty. Human communities inside of time are comprised of people who love God and people who don't. And if that's going to stay true until Jesus comes back, and I believe it is it's going to stay true until Jesus comes back, then we have to, we have to differentiate the institutions of the church and the state, because there's never going to be a, a, a state that can say, we're the one. <laughs> we're the chosen one, right? I think uh, whenever I say this, I think of the song of Simeon when Jesus is presented at the temple um, where where. The Anglican liturgy derives its nunc dimittis um, uh, from this, of now let your servant depart in peace, um, um, uh, because um, my, basically my eyes have seen the Savior, a, a light to enlighten the, the Gentiles uh, and the glory of your people Israel. Basically, the doors of the covenant community get thrown open to people of every tribe, tongue, and language, and it ceases to be just political Israel, right? If that's true, we have to differentiate church and state, and protect, and there's a varying ranges of how to do this, but protect religious liberty. 
Um, and this is, this is a key feature of a liberal democratic order that is essential to a hopeful realist understanding of politics. Um, <clears throat> third, restraint and liberty. The goods of responsible human agency. Remember how we talked about that's one of the key goods? The goods of responsible human agency and the danger of power in the hands of sinners and the importance of virtues like humility, prudence, detachment, um, all suggest governments of limited powers exercised with accountability. This is the, the part of the democracy part um, um, are essential, right? That's a theological argument for you heard it right, liberal democracy. Third, which actually, or fourth, which names democracy is democracy and decentralization. This is just the principle that citizen involvement in government um, respects human agency. If volitional goals are actually part of what it means to be a flourishing human, then our participation in our government is a way of reflecting that. Um, this is not absolute liberty, but it's agency. Um, the decentralization part of this is, is really aimed at saying, look, let's keep thicker conceptions of human flourishing, that is, more substantive conceptions of human flourishing, policies that reflect more and more substantive conceptions of human flourishing. Let's keep the more substantive they are, the more local they are. Because the more it's going to take a lot of rich contextual fa uh, factors into account, and the less likely it is to do that imposing thing we were talking about earlier. So um, it's aiming to keep those thicker decisions closer to sub-communities um, um, and to incorporate the agency of people in them. And we know the smaller a community, the more your vote matters, right? I was just participating in an, a, 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 a faculty election recently where the first round of, of voting included a tie and we had to do a runoff. And that's because it's a small group and, and, and therefore each vote really matters. And so that question of democracy and decentralization is actually tied together, right? Um, <clears throat> so those are, those are four, four principles that we articulate. And... In terms of putting this all to work, I want to be really cautious. I want to be really cautious. We're about to go into that box at the bottom. Before we talk about the box, let me tell you what the box is not so that you, we can think together about what it is. It's not an algorithm. In other words, you can't just take any situation out there, put it through this system, and get the right answer. If that were true we wouldn't be respecting the kind of creatures that we are, which are rational and volitional and relational. And so if that were true, then all we would need was a really good computer. We could just put this into chat GPT, give it all the right premises, and see what it spits out. That's not what kind of thing it is. We can't alienate ourselves from our agency. We still have to make judgments, moral judgments. And, and so this is more a framework to say, look, if we want to get more consistent about bringing moral judgments into our political activities 
so that we know where kind of we know where our thinking is coming from and we're relating it to other important things. What are the kinds of questions that we need to ask in order to get there? It's a little bit analogous to some of you may have run into the Christian just war tradition. And the just war tradition is great because it has sort of like this, this set of questions that whenever you've got a potential for an armed conflict, you kind of you, you plug stuff in and, 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 and you say, okay, this is how we're going to decide whether or not it's a just war or not. But if you've, if you've ever done that with just war theory, you know it's not a computer. It's not an algorithm. Two people can look at the same thing and reach a different judgment. And so I just want to be really clear. If you, it, you know, if after this book comes out, if you read the book, and then the, sec the whole second half of the book is applying this to particular policy areas, we're not trying to say that this tells you what, that you have to reach a particular conclusion about a particular policy area. But if we want to be consistent and coherent in ways that are recognizable, then at least processing it in these ways will help us get there. But we're realists at the end of the day on that front. So I just want to say, it's not a computer. It's not an algorithm. Um, it's not just punching the, the data and you spit out the answer. Um, but we want to say, look, the first thing, when we're faced with a tricky political issue, you have to identify the good or principle at issue and how it relates to human flourishing. If you're looking at a particular question of policy, what's the primary good at issue? So working with the categories of physical, rational, volitional, and relational goods, we should try and figure out which good or set of goods is primarily implicated in a political question. Seems fairly straightforward at first, but then when you try it, there's usually one that's sort of clearly up front, and then there's going to be a couple more stacked below it. And you kind of have to hold all of them with care. Second is discerning and choosing among our, our options. Um, uh, what are the range of policy options that are on the table for making policy in a particular area? And usually there's, you know, there's a range. The two extremes on the range are usually pretty absurd. And, uh, and then somewhere, you know, in the middle, there will be a few that you're going to have to select among. But it's good to just, like, name, well, what's the, what's the, what's the range of possibilities here? Um, in the book, our first application chapter deals with economic distribution and um, particularly children in need. And there's sort of like two extremes on the questions of economic di distribution and children in need. Like one extreme would be, um, you know, the, like the libertarian extreme would be state doesn't get involved, you let the parents figure it out, right? And the kind of statist economic extreme would be uh, the state takes the children um, anytime there's, there's need and raises them itself, right? Um, and those are both really extreme. One is valuing kind of a good of liberty over here, and another is valuing a good of physical well-being over here. But we recognize that it isn't honoring some other needs, and so we know kind of not to accept those, those extreme ones. And then we have to look kind of at the details of the policy options that would fall between those. But we need, to, uh, we need to identify the range of options that we have and then ask some questions about them. And the first question that we suggest here, you can see in your outline, is which of the options is most likely to secure the primary good in question in a manner consistent with our political principles? So thinking about economic distribution and children in need, um, if the primary good at issue is physical well-being, right? Because the need we're describing is an economic need. 
um, in, in an important sense. Um, how do you do that in a way that respects, um, that's consistent with those political principles of common good and civic friendship, pluralism, religious liberty, political res uh, restraint, and liberty, democracy, and decentralization? That's hard work, but it can be done. Um, and then the second question in discerning among the options in the policy sector is which of the options helps to secure other goods at issue? So besides just the physical well-being in the case of economic distribution for needy children, um, it helps to, uh, you know, there's, there's more than just physical things at stake there. Which of the options helps to secure other goods at issue without harming other goods and or violating our political principles? Um, and then prudence. <laughs> and prudence is kind of a catch-all for, you have to think about context. You have to think about context, and context varies. Um, what, um, how do we best pursue our chosen option in a particular social and political context? For example, you might come up with a, 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 a policy solution to that economic distribution question of children in need that in a particular context there simply aren't the resources to do what you think is the best way to do it. So then you have to think prudentially, with the resources that are available, what's the best you can do, right? Um, or I mean, there are other potential things there. Uh, all this to say, the, the hope the hope that we have in the project, and I say we because it's, it's, it's a co-authored um, project, the hope that we have in the project is to nudge, to nudge towards increasing consistency and coherence in the way that Christians are bringing our moral convictions into the political world, first and foremost by distinguishing between the creational norms of natural law and the covenantal norms of, of God's community, the church, to think about what's common to all, and then to think about the ways in which we can derive political principles that guide that, that also help to make sense of, of commitment to a liberal democracy and how to apply them in a liberal democracy. Um, that's the hope. My guess is that I probably raised more questions than answers. I'm not going to apologize for doing that. If you, ask a, if you invite a professor, you get a professor's uh, uh, teaching style, and I like to provoke questions. Um, and, uh, and so I won't apologize for raising questions, but I will, I will say that what I hope you do with them is pursue it further. What I hope you do with it is pursue it further. If you want the short version of this written up so you can go back and say, what in the world was he talking about? Because what he said didn't make sense. Um, I, can, I'll leave, I have a QR code that I'll set here. That There's a published article version of this where if you want to read the article, you can just go to it online, and, and that will probably make more sense than what I've said here. Um, if you really want to dig in on it, there will be a book out later on, on, on this um, um, topic. Um, but my hope is that the natural law tradition can help equip the church for some of our shortcomings now. Um, and that we can do that well in a liberal democracy. 
and really that it can help us do what I think the Philippians 3 passage that, um, that, that Nikki pointed uh, me to for the theme for this is how do we live in light of our ultimate citizenship? I think this is something that equips us for our eschatological time and place in history. Um, that's, that's a goal. And, uh, and with that, I'll, uh, I'll stop. I'm, I, I was trying to make time for 15 minutes of Q&A, but oh, I've gone long, haven't I, Nikki? Well, oh. we also started late. So okay. How about, All right. Um, if people have to leave, feel free. But would you be willing to stay around? Oh, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. I think I was, I was looking at the wrong quarter hour, probably on my, uh, on my watch, because we started a little bit late. So that's probably the. I, I apologize. Okay. Well, maybe it'll keep me from getting into too much trouble with Q and A. We're out of time. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, sir. What's Augustinian? I, I hear that a lot. Okay. I apologize for not defining that. That's that's my fault. That is a thought that is characteristic of, um, of St. Augustine of Hippo, a North African bishop who lived at the end of the 4th and early 5th centuries, who's probably, short of St. Paul, the most important um, shaper of the theology of the Western Church. Okay, and what did he believe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In in this context, in this context, what he what he believed that I'm I'm tapping into is um, so he, one of his most famous works is called City of God, right? And so City of God is this enormous treatise. You know, my version's almost 1,100 pages long. Um, that's telling kind of the history of the world as the history of those who love God and those who don't kind of working out their messy lives together, but it's this history of, of those who love God who are on their way ultimately to God and those who don't rebelling. And, um, and, and that distinction for characterizing our shared life is really important for what I'm sharing. He also thinks that what we love most deeply shapes everything else that we do. And I, I really like our deepest loves ordering everything as a way of thinking about the main, I'm going to keep pointing at Nikki whenever I think about the theme for encounter. Um, um, shaping everything else that we do. So our deepest loves shape what we want and therefore what we will. Um, the two other things that I mentioned in this context that are significant for him, he thinks scripture is absolutely the highest authority by which we can gain knowledge. He also thinks that natural reason helps us a lot, but the scripture is always ultimately authoritative. In that sense, I think he's helpful for um, those who would self-describe as theologically evangelical to think about the relationship between special revelation and general revelation. Um, he also really thinks that sin messes up the world. And he thinks, he thinks long and expansively about what that looks like and what it means. So in this context, those are some of the ways that I'm drawing on his, on his thought. Yeah. There was a question back here. Yeah. You um, are definitely speaking like a professor. I'm sorry. I apologize. There's so many concepts that you just threw out in a word, you know, like natural law and um, all these things need definitions yeah. which take would take ten classes. And and you just went so fast and it was fantastic but <laughs> but sorry. um there were no definite the definitions were missing and there were no examples. If you would just give an example of what you're talking about, it would bring everything into your process. Okay. So what I might do, rather than try to new ones, let me point back to a couple things that I hope both help on the definitional side and might help on the exemplar side. 
Um, uh, so the, what I was trying to give with the example about creation care was actually definitional to natural law. It's both an example and a definition of saying, all right, if we believe that creation is a certain kind of a thing, then, uh, and, and that we can think about it being well-ordered versus disordered, then, um, then rational reflection on observation and understanding can help us understand like what is better ordered or worse ordered look like. And, um, and, um, and therefore, we, then we have a moral obligation to act in ways that help toward the right ordering. So what I was doing with that was I was, and maybe this is where I gave an example where I should have given a definition. <laughs> this might be the problem. Um, is I was trying to say kind of natural law is trying to say, look, there are kind of, it's operating on the assumption that, that um, things in God's creation, whether we're talking about nature or us, are certain kinds of things that can be rightly ordered or wrongly ordered, and that we can learn better about right ordering through reflection. And then we have a moral obligation to act on that. Um, and that's really at the heart of what I'm trying to define as natural law here. And that, that's creational. It's built into the order of creation. Um, and so that might have been a place where I was, I, I was using an example for a definition. That was probably con confusing. Um, one of the reasons why I, um, I'm trying to move away like so at the, at the end when I, was, when I was walking through kind of putting this to work and I was talking about economic distribution as a potential place to apply this, I was skirting, I was skirting it. I was not going straight at the heart of it. In part, there's, there's a couple things that, that make me resistant to doing that. Uh, but I will tell you what like the examples are in the chapters. That, like we, we have a chapter on economics. We have a chapter on... Um, um, marriage, sex, and the family. We have a chapter on um, war and the use of coercive force. We have a chapter on um, religious liberty. So, so there's some controversial stuff, and there's some uh, stuff that people think of as less controversial. Uh, maybe there isn't. Um, um, but part of why I'm, I'm trying to be cautious about going too far down one of the exemplar things that kind of skirted the issue on economic distribution is, is because one it's because it's not like a, it's not an algorithm that you just punch in all the data and you get exactly the right answer out every time. I don't want the application to confuse the, the, the system. And there's also a rhetorical reason there is I think often if I sort of tease it out to one particular policy conclusion, anyone who disagrees with the policy, uh, policy conclusion discounts the whole framework. And I think the framework is really, really important. And so I don't want the, any particular policy area to be a stumbling block. My guess is if, if you put like the five policy areas that you care the most about into this, some of them would come back and would ratify your convictions. And you'd be like, great. And some of them you go, oh, I don't like this. Because that, that, I mean, that's the case for me, right? Um, so anyway, that's, that's where some of my caution about going too far on the example route in this is. But I recognize it's crummy teaching to not do it in that way. And I, 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 I appreciate that. Yes, sir? I think a step that was missing in your fantastic argument, and I think it's, it's an unwritten subcast, sub prerequisite that I think you intend, but it's not there. It's being informed. Because what ends up happening is we've all heard the road to hell is paved with great intentions. And what ends up happening is looking into policy and how it relates to the natural law, um, there's a lot of prerequisite information needed before you get into step one. 
that you're talking about because a lot of times we get emotional and politics and po politicians are good at pulling the emotional strings and giving us emotional so we think of that child and we get emotional and we'll have an emotional reaction instead of actually thinking it through and, and thinking for example what's the long-term benefit to the child instead of giving it candy now. So I think that's that's unwritten in your you know, paper, but you intend Yeah, I would say yes. And and I would just I would I would add I would just I would add to that. Well so here's here's part of my yes is remember I was saying like kind of the extreme policy views, like when you're setting out like what are the range of policies by which we could solve this problem. The extreme ones are obviously bad, but then there's a whole range of policy options in the middle that you're right. If you don't understand the details of how they actually affect people in real life, um, they're going to go hopelessly awry. Here would be the other thing I would add on to my answer. Just as you're saying, you know, go, go back to the economic distribution for children in need question. Any solution that we hear that meets the most pressing physical need has, in a sense, the, the prospect of sounding right. And one of the things that we're trying to do is saying, how do you hold that host of other goods in view as part of it so that when you're considering, you're not just reducing the problem to, the mo to its most pressing feature? which is really hard, and it takes a lot of attention. And here's the, here's the problem. I mean, this is going to the reference to Felicia Song's book um, that was made there. We're, we're habituated to distraction, which means that sustained reflection is harder, which actually means that it's not just like what's at stake in the question of our liturgies and our devices, as Pastor Colleen was just talking about. What's at stake in that? Is, is not just our own formation, but our ability to love well. Because other, if, if we're distracted, we accept the reductive answers, which have all sorts of unintended consequences, which political history is full of. And, uh, and, and, and it's not that I've got this all figured out, it's that I'm aspiring to something better. That's what I'm hoping, I'm hoping for, for the church. Let's see, there's a hand back here. Yes. I, I had a high school teacher who taught Reptilian? Did you say reptilian? Wow. What it allows me to do, or has forced me to do, is hold two opposing thoughts simultaneously and be comfortable with that. And I think that it's also encouraged me to consider unintended consequences. And I'll give you a real quick example of immigration policy. Had the good fortune of spending a lot of time in Guatemala. So open borders have led to a tremendous outflow of young men, who, and that's led to the collapse of industries in Guatemala. Entire villages have suffered because there's no labor to support traditional crafts. So we owe ourselves, I think, to follow up on Nick to, to think about what, if we're now an opinion, we strongly inform it to be informed. I think we can wholly love people. Have opposing views as to what immigration policy is because it has consequences that we don't know about. If that makes sense. But, but I really appreciated my high school teachers. I learned nothing else but opposing points of view. 
Yeah, no, that's helpful. That's helpful. Thanks. Thank you. Um, at the end of when you were speaking, I was just thinking that what you're teaching is is really directly contradicting the false gods of, of our political reality. Um, because, right, people are probably feeling like, well, where are the answers? Like, where's the certainty? Because you're you're promoting hopeful realism, not angry or fearful certainty. Yes. And I would say that's what the political gods are offering. Um, and that's a false gospel. And so the gospel you're calling us to is one of faithfulness, prudence, humility, um, Amen. I'm glad. I'm glad that comes through. I, I love politics. <laughs> I love politics. It's also not the answer. I think it's so important, and it's not the answer. And the and the good news is that, in a, in a sense, our deepest hopes are eschatological. That um, that the King of King and Lord of Lords will return and restore. Um, that doesn't get us off the hook for our responsibilities here, but in terms of our ultimate hopes, amen, sister. Yeah. 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 Yes, sir. Number, uh, Roman numeral number two? Okay. So uh, what what would eliminate some of the, the items that are listed beyond? If if someone doesn't have moral character? If they don't have any moral character, then voters should know that crime too. That's the right Yes. Yeah, no, I I I agree. I was only listing that as a place where um, self-described evangelicals have really changed their opinions very quickly. Um, not to endorse where they changed them to on 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 that. Um, but you're absolutely right. Most of the rest of this is written for policy questions, not for um, voting for a person questions. Um, and so you're, you're right. It might eliminate having to think about a lot of this. If a person has a bad moral character, um, that's sort of a non-starter to engage in the rest of the, the rest of the conversation, if I'm understanding you correctly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then we'll probably have you pray, pray us out, and then if someone has a burning question, we'll be there. Yeah. Okay, sure, sure. All right, yeah, let's, uh, thanks for great questions. I love, I love, I would, yeah, I would wish we had longer. Let me, let me, let me pray for us to close. Loving God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, would you, be at work for good in each of our political reflection and participation and in all the political contexts in which we find ourselves. Would we live 
and act and vote in ways that seek the flourishing of all? Would we resist the temptations of power to control the world around us? And would you help us to look to Jesus and hope in his return? In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Amen.